friends. Welcome back to The Word is Resistance, a podcast of showing up for racial justice, or SURGE. My name is Nicola Torbett, and this is the podcast where we explore our weekly Christian scripture readings with an eye toward racial justice and collective liberation. We've aimed this podcast at white listeners like me, who want to dismantle white supremacy following the leadership of people of color, and also taking full responsibility for our own part of the work. Of course, anyone and everyone can listen, and we deeply value feedback from listeners of color and non-Christians. And we also acknowledge that as white Christian folks, we have extra work to do, that it is our responsibility to learn how to resist the forces of white Christian supremacy from which we've benefited and with which we are otherwise complicit. We are digging around, searching for what is useful and life-giving in the artifacts of a tradition that has too often been used for harm. So this week finds us two weeks into the season of Advent. Advent is the four-week period of preparation to welcome God into the world as a vulnerable baby born to an unsheltered family in a colonized backwater, and also as the triumphant reigning power in the world. Advent is about both comings of Jesus at once, the first and the second, which is super paradoxical paradoxical and mind-blowing, especially if you imagine that second coming is just as vulnerable as the first. A couple of episodes ago, I talked about Reign of Christ Sunday, or Stir Up Sunday, as I called the episode, as the time when we recognize that the only king there is, is need itself. And that what we serve when we serve Christ is service itself. A mutual dance of love and self-giving for the benefit of one another and of all life. I see Advent as a continuation of that theme. And the second coming as the triumph of vulnerable love over all the forces that would extinguish it. And this year... We are focusing on the theme of hashtag abolition advent, not just because of alliteration, although that is nice, but because we recognize that vulnerable love cannot triumph, can hardly survive amidst these systems that were created to serve other gods, gods of domination and accumulation and worldly security that demand the sacrifice of the innocent. It is time to abolish all that threatens God's vulnerable life. It is demolition time. Okay, I know demolition is not exactly a cozy Christmas topic. And after Claire's episode last week about the tearing open of the heavens and the tearing up of systems, I'm starting to suspect that my expectations of a cozy advent may just be misplaced. And it's funny, because this week's passage from Isaiah begins with the word comfort, something many of us may feel the need for right about now, because 2020 
but then the passage jolts quickly into demolition by the third verse. Have a listen to Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 5. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term, that her penalty is paid, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all people shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So this passage starts with the command to comfort the people and speak tenderly to Jerusalem that the time of her punishment has been served. Now I know that's a whole thing, and I'll come back to that near the end of the episode. After that, there's some highway construction there in the middle, complete with the dynamiting of hills and the regrading of valleys. And then the prophet circles back to comfort, this assertion that the glory of God shall be revealed to all people together. This passage is kind of a comfort sandwich with a wrecking ball and a bunch of jackhammers in the middle. And in my mind's eye, I see a little arrow pointing to the wrecking ball with the words, 2020, you are here. We are in the time of the wrecking ball and it's loud and it's chaotic and there's debris everywhere and maybe the world is ending or maybe all this is heading somewhere, but it's really hard to see through the dust to where that might be. The glory of God revealed? Most days I'm not sure. But we do know where it was headed for the original hearers of this word from Isaiah. See, the context for this scripture is that the powerful Babylonian empire has conquered tiny Judah and extracted a bunch of the people forced them to come and live in Babylon and participate in making the empire great. And this word announces an end to this exile in Babylon. The highway in the middle of this passage was headed home, out of captivity to the Babylonian empire and back to the promised land, back to the rightful place intended by God for these particular people as part of God's larger ecosystem. There is embedded in this story of the exile and return, the idea that there is a place for us, for everyone. We all fit somewhere in God's ecosystem. Borrowing from the poet Mary Oliver, we could say the people of Judah were being taken back to their rightful place in the family of things. Could it be that we also are being delivered home via all the chaos and tumult of 2020? back to our rightful place in God's ecosystem? I don't think there's an easy or simple answer to that question. I don't think we can know from here because so much depends on how we relate to the circumstances in which we find ourselves. Let's turn now to the circumstances in which the people of Judah found themselves when they heard this word and see what that might suggest for us. Don't get weary, courage. 
prophet Isaiah is speaking here, or God is speaking through the prophet, to the people of Judah, who are in exile in the powerful and prosperous Babylonian empire. This word goes out not necessarily to the exact people who lived through the traumatic sacking of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple and the forced migration into Babylon, but to their children and even maybe their grandchildren, because it's now nearly 50 years later. I've been thinking a lot this year about whether those descendants of the exiles even wanted to go home to Judah. I mean, Babylon wasn't so bad. Reports suggest that it was beautiful and prosperous with a thriving art scene and lots of luxuries to which the exiles had probably contributed and that they might have gotten used to. Research suggests that many of these families of exiles from Judah had done quite well for themselves and were now embedded in lucrative business arrangements and thriving social networks within the empire of Babylon. In an article for the Journal of Hebrew Scriptures, Marshall Cunningham reads these first chapters of 2nd Isaiah to suggest that the people had to be persuaded to leave and go back home, that they were not necessarily eager, even if some part of them must have known that they were displaced, that they had been severed from their ancestral lands and their God, who here speaks to them for the first time since the exile began. Did they even want to go home? especially since going home would mean returning to a decimated country populated by the descendants of those who had been too poor and unskilled to be desirable to the Babylonians. See, the land isn't empty. See, not everyone has been taken into exile, and often we forget this because we usually hear the story through the perspective of those who were taken, but really, it was only the ruling class and skilled artisans who were taken captive, leaving behind a destitute and hungry population with very few resources to survive on. Parenthetically, we might want to think about the ways that a global financial empire is today replicating what Babylon did, draining the most educated and skilled people from so-called developing countries to more developed headquarters of the empire, including Silicon Valley, right here in California, USA, and leaving the rest of the population behind, struggling to subsist. Empire sucks resources from outlying areas for the benefit of the center. That's just what it does. It recruits people, sometimes by force, but sometimes by seduction, through economic opportunity to come into the center and further build that same empire that is subjugating the people back home. That's how it works. This is the process by which people of various European ethnicities who immigrated to this country became white. They gave up many of the markers of their ethnicity and often also their loyalties to the people back home in order to assimilate into the dominant white American culture. And it's not just white folks who are beckoned into this devil's bargain. People of color are sometimes also given the opportunity to assimilate to some degree, though never as fully or with as many benefits as lighter-skinned people. Latinx writer Richard Rodriguez writes wrenchingly in his book, Hunger of Memory, about higher education separated him from his immigrant family. And I remember reading that book and just feeling so devastated 
because I could see the ways that I had made the same bargain, trading intimacy with my working class family for currency within the dominant culture and all the benefits that come with that. Empire has its seductions. Just this past weekend, I met a friend for lunch in a newly renovated part of Oakland that now features a beautiful waterfront lawn with performance space, a little upscale grocery market, a pricey restaurant, lots of public art. We walked around the area, our mouths hanging open, and concluded that gentrification does have its upside. It's hard to be mad, even though we know that the influx of people who could afford the pricey condos that surrounded that lawn will dramatically increase the cost of living for our whole city and create even more wealth inequality that tends to break down, if imperfectly, along racial lines. Empire is seductive for those who can embed themselves within it. So I wonder if the exiles wanted to go home, especially knowing that to do so would require them to reconcile with the impoverished people left behind. They would have to share what they had accumulated during their time in Babylon. I think that's what those soaring verses are about, the ones about the mountains being laid low and the valleys raised up. The prophet is talking about wealth redistribution, about destroying the differences between the wealthy people up on the hills and the poor people in the valleys. The prophet is talking about abolishing wealth inequality and the systems that create and maintain it. This is going to require reparations and the tearing down and thorough reinvention of our existing financial systems. In our case, things like mortgages, credit, payday lending, the stock market, and banking at interest. Building the route home to the promised land necessarily involves the dynamiting of these systems of inequality. Abolition of wealth inequality is a necessary prerequisite for coming back into right relationship with God and the promised land. And then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all people shall see it together. There's comfort in this final assurance, but it's not a cheap comfort. It comes at the cost of abolishing everything that would prevent some people from seeing it all, while others have box seats. This is a costly return. So yes, we have to wonder if the exiles from Judah wanted to return, especially when to do so would involve such a cost to their personal wealth acquisition. We have to wonder who among us really wants to return. Maybe we would prefer to stay in Babylon. But the problem for the Judean exiles was that the Babylonian empire was already falling. The only reason they were going to be allowed to return was that Babylon was falling to Persia, and King Cyrus of Persia was determined to send the exiles home. He had figured out that having them around was not in his best interest. The luxurious and prosperous life that the exilic families had gotten used to was undergoing a dramatic shift 
as the Babylonian Empire crumbled. The world, as the exile-descended Judeans had known it, was ending, and they could choose to release their grip on the comforts they had known and go home. So what about us? Is the empire to which many of us have assimilated crumbling? Has the U.S. global ascendancy ended? Has COVID-19 dealt a fatal blow to the global financial empire that runs the world? Will exponential climate change mean the end of the world as we've known it? Of course, I don't know the answers to these questions. I'm not sure anybody really does. Of course, the world has already ended, though, many times over, for indigenous people around the world. But will it end for us? those of us who have assimilated to the empire that is accelerating it. Over the past year or so, I've spent some time poking around in the Deep Adaptation Network, which is a community that has constellated around the work of Jim Bendel, a scholar who predicts complete social collapse over the next 50 years as a result of dramatic climate shifts. The Deep Adaptation Framework has come under intense criticism and is considered by some to be way too pessimistic. But to me, there is something oddly reassuring about contemplating worst-case scenarios. I know that sounds strange, but just this past week, I found something that helped me understand my response. I discovered a network of people who are studying indigenous critiques from around the world. They're calling themselves the gesturing toward decolonial futures collective. In a long article that I'll link to in the transcript, they write, we propose that a decolonial future requires a different mode of coexistence that will only be made possible with and through the end of the world as we know it, which is a world that has been built on and is maintained by different forms of violence and unsustainability. The collective goes on to cite a Brazilian proverb that says, in a flood situation, it is only when the water reaches people's hips that it becomes possible for them to swim. Before that, with the water at our ankles or knees, it is only possible to walk or to wade. In other words, we might only be able to learn to swim, that is, to exist differently, once we have no other choice. They are talking the Gesturing Toward Decolonial Futures Collective, about the abolition of a whole way of life, a way that they encapsulate in the acronym ESCAPE, Entitlement, Surety, Control, Autonomy, Progress, and Exceptionalism. And as an alternative to ESCAPE, they offer the acronym COMPOST, which stands for Capacity for Holding Space for Complexity, owning up to one's own complicity in causing harm, maturity, pausing the compulsion to fix long enough to disinvest from harmful desires, entitlements, projections, and fantasies, othering of our self-images to embrace shadow qualities, stamina and sobriety to show up differently, and finally turning toward unlimited responsibility for ourselves, each other, and this world. Amidst all the suffering and the death, COVID-19 has gifted us with a pause, 
and friends, I find myself wondering whether COVID is our Cyrus. No friendly force by any means, not a gift from God, any more than the Babylonian exile was a punishment from God, but an opportunity nonetheless to return home. Home to the land, home to ourselves, home to the covenant to take care of each other in close relationship with a God of love and second chances. So that's my question for all of us this week. Do we want to go home? A way is being made. Demolition is underway. The old way is under siege. And with our cooperation and commitment to abolish inequality, it could fall and give way to something new. Have we had enough of exile? Is our longing to return to our rightful place, right relationship with the land, our God, and each other, strong enough that we are willing to let go of the spoils of empire and set out on the highway being blazed before us? Do we want to go home? I know that was a lot to take in. This week, I encourage you to check out that article from the Gesturing Toward Decolonial Futures Collective. It's on opendemocracy.net. Follow some of their links, prioritizing those that take you to indigenous sources. Take some time to just steep yourself, to marinate in the possibility of a new world that lies on the other side of abolition. If possible, find a friend or two to talk about all this with. And then, on your own or better with those friends, take a concrete step toward abolishing inequality. If you need ideas, the Movement for Black Lives has just released their reparations toolkit. I'll link to that in the transcript. You can also check out the U.S. Indigenous Land Back Movement and take steps toward returning land to Native peoples. These concrete reparations are the way back home, and we take steps toward them in faith that the glory of God shall be revealed, and all people, all people shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Amen. So that's what I've got for you this week, folks. Be sure to tune in next week to hear a resistance word from my comrade, Reverend Ann Dunlap as we continue with Abolition Advent. We are tearing down what doesn't serve God's vulnerable life. And together, we are building up a new world. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for granting us permission to use the song by this name in our podcast. It was written by Dr. Vincent Harding, and here it is being sung at a movement choir practice led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. Finally, I want to thank our sound editor for this week, Max Pearl. Max, so much love and gratitude to you. That's it for now, friends. So many blessings to you for good health, deep transformation, and loving connection as we tear down the old world and build up a new world. Until next time, I'm Nicola Torbett. <laughs>